0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. To summarize the first 14 verses of the chapter, Paul brings a concern of his before the Philippians, namely that Judaizing theology would reach their shores. That is the teaching that insists that we're saved by faith in Jesus and our keeping of the law. It's faith plus works, grace plus merit. You might say that we're in by grace, but we remain in by works. It's a Jesus plus me. And then Paul, in this chapter, he puts forth his own story or narrative or testimony to show the Philippians and us that our good works apart from Christ are dead, that they don't actually help us before God, they hurt us, that the totality of life apart from God... Paul's entire previous identity and his works, he realizes that they're as worthless as the dung of a dog compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ personally as his Lord. Paul's goal then is to gain the person of Jesus Christ and to be clothed in his righteousness, to stand before the Father as a son because he's in the Son. And it becomes for him the knowing of Jesus or the gaining of Christ It becomes an all-consuming reality worth suffering and dying to experience the fullness of knowing Jesus and being made like Him, which comes, as we saw, not on this side of death but the other side of resurrection. Paul then pains himself to remind the Philippians and us that he's not reached the goal, right? He's not perfect but he presses on to take hold of the one who took hold of him. So Paul takes up this imagery of the Christian life as a race, like a runner. We don't look behind we don't focus on our previous failings or accomplishments even, but we press on toward the goal, which is God calling us home to Himself. And that brings us to Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 through 4-1. If you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 3, verses 15 through 4-1. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way, And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. You can be seated. So how do we, if the Christian life is like a race to heaven, how do we run this race? That's a question I want to ask this morning. How do we run this race to heaven? Ask differently. How do we stand firm in light of opposition from the state, apostasy from within, suffering as we live between Christ's first and second coming? How do we keep our gaze on glory as we live in a state of humiliation. What does it look like to wait on heaven? So how do we run this race? We'll see three things or actions that are necessary from the text for running well. Mature thinking, careful imitation, and eager waiting. How do we run the race? Mature thinking, we'll see in verses 15 and 16. Careful imitation, verses 17 and 19. And eager waiting waiting. Verse 20 through chapter 4 verse 1. In the first two points we see what is really Christian discipleship? The thinking on God's word, the living according to the truth we received, the following of those who are doing likewise. And in the last, the eager waiting, we see the completion of the Christian race and our discipleship. The being made fully to be like Jesus. But first, mature thinking. Part of running well means running well. Part of running well means thinking well sorry look at verse 15 it begins therefore again this is one of those words that we focus on it's a linking word paul's just given us this narrative about his desire to know and to gain the infinitely valuable one of his not being perfect but pressing toward the goal therefore here comes the application for us let all of us who are mature think this way Paul does something interesting here. He calls on the spiritually mature in particular to match his thinking. That's not to say the immature are exempt from what he's saying, but he is confident that in their case, they will conform to what he's thinking. That is, they will come to agree with what he's saying, which are, as we know, the very words of God. Now, thinking isn't everything for the Christian. You know, that might be a kind of false character you get sometimes. We're not like brains on a stick, but there's a type of primacy given to thinking, we believe, because it fuels our, it fuels and feeds our emotions and actions. So mature thinking, that is to say, right thoughts rightly ordered before God ought to live to a mature type of living. And right thinking begins with contemplating God's words to us in Scripture. So Paul's expectation is they get, as they get this letter that they would sit down with it, that they would hear it, that they would meditate on it, that they would struggle with it, and ultimately that they would conform to it as God reveals the truth to them. So what are we being called to think in particular? I think Paul wants us to grasp two things. We saw this last time, but that the Christian is imperfect, but we're in progress, right? That we've not made it to the finish line, but we're running. This means one, you can't already be there, okay? If you think you've made it, you're mistaken. It also means you have to be running, If you're not running toward heaven, you're also mistaken. You might be mistaken about thinking you're a Christian, as we'll see soon. But think this way. I think this is what Paul's getting at, verse 12. Not that I have already reached the goal, I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it. And verse 13, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward toward what is ahead. So much of Christian immaturity is rooted in one of these two opposite errors or poles. On the one in thinking we've made it, we've arrived, we're perfect. You could call this self-righteousness and the opposite error being um, because we're not gonna make it, because we won't be perfect in this life rather, I'm just not gonna make any effort, right? In one sense we wrongly think that grace and earning are congruent and in the other we think that grace is opposed to effort. But the Christian understands that we are not yet what we will one day be, but by God's grace we're striving toward that end. And again, we're not talking about a kind of naked moralism or intellectualism, but the desire to gain Jesus Christ, to know him personally, which involves the whole of our being, our thinking, feeling, and living. And Paul goes on, And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. If you currently think differently, which is to say, if you currently think wrongly, right? we're not talking about Paul's opinion about uh, whether or not the Lakers will win tonight. I think they will. (laughs) Josh thinks wrongly about this. We're not talking about something trivial. right? We're talking about the very words of God as are written by Paul here. Paul is confident that God will reveal this to them, that there ought to be a level of conformity. And so Paul's confidence is rooted in the graciousness of God, that what God began in us, he will bring to completion. He will finish it. And in the case of the mature Christian, Paul is confident, I think, that they're going to sit down, like I said, with his letter and do the hard work of trying to think and understand what he's communicating. They will use the brains that God has given them to do the hard work of trying to think God's thoughts after him. And this is why Paul is confident God will reveal the truth to them. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Hear that one more time. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Did you catch that? Man has a role. Consider. Think. And the Lord has a role. Gifting understanding. God has spoken to us in his word objectively, clearly, right? But for us to understand in a way that's not just intellectual, God has to speak to us internally. Not saying something new to us, but enlightening the eyes of our heart to understand, to match what he's written us in his word. So there's this objective revelation, and there's an internal revelation as God actually gives us the gift of understanding as we struggle to use our minds to think well about who God is and what he's disclosed to us in his scriptures. So the Christian uses his or her brain to seek to understand the things of God, trusting that God will give them the gift of understanding. This is why we read texts in our services. This is why we preach Uh, longer sermons. This is why our songs are theologically rich. This is why we read and wrestle with the scriptures at home and in our Bible studies. Part of running well means thinking well, meditating on the truths of God in our quiet times. You might think perhaps like Jacob wrestling with God to get a blessing of truth, to understand him and know him more deeply. We seek to understand with all the saints what is the length and width and height depths of god's love toward us in christ that is what we do on sunday mornings here running well means hiding truths in our hearts that we might delight in the lord and not sin against him it means guarding ourselves from being conformed to the pattern of this world by the renewal of our minds as we meditate on god's scripture we seek to understand god and by his grace he gives us understanding sanctification involves the whole person including the mind so we think well as we run well but understanding isn't an excuse to disregard God's Word in the way we live. Paul goes on verse 16 in any case that is regardless under any circumstance whether you understand or not whether you match my thinking we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Not we should live up to whatever truth we understand but we should live up to whatever truth we have attained or received. That is a lack of understanding is not an excuse or justification for inconsistent living. We will be held accountable to what God has given us in his word. So yes, we struggle for greater degrees of understanding that our obedience might be all the more joyful, but we're not like toddlers. We don't have to understand the why and the why behind the why and the why behind the why behind the why. (laughs) Right? The why is all the way down. God's good and gracious revelation ought to be sufficient for simple, trusting obedience. But there is something that helps us run this Christian race even as we don't yet fully understand, and that's Christian models. Those that we can hear from and listen to that we watch and imitate. We strive to think maturely, but we also look for models to imitate as we're seeking to live up to the truth we have received. So we now consider that part of running the race well means careful imitation. It means careful imitation. Verse 17, look at the text. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. The Philippians are to imitate Paul, right? His thinking, his living, and they're to pay careful attention to that is they're to keep their eyes open for those who are living according to the same example that they have in Paul. So Paul's doing two things here. One, he's drawing what we might call a downline from Paul to those living according to his example to the Philippians. And he's also drawing a circle around those that they are to imitate in contrast to those that they're not to follow, which we'll see in verse 18. So Paul's getting at, follow those who follow us, but don't follow these people over here, verse 18. We're running two different races with two different endings or outcomes. So Paul begins with his downline, right, in Following the example of those who follow Paul or imitating Paul, who's imitating Christ. He says something really similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. I want you to imitate me, so I'm sending you Timothy. Okay, right. What you'll see in Timothy is this consistency with my own teaching and living. He's like, a son to me. He's like a son to me. He'll remind you of my way of life, my teaching. You see, sons ought to remind you of their fathers. If you were to spend time around Haddon, it would remind you of me. Even just thinking about yesterday, all the things that we did. As he was eating breakfast in the morning, I put on uh, the book of Jonah audio. It's what I think I'm going to preach next, Lord willing. And after we listened to it, hadn't said, let's listen to it again. I said, all right. We listened to it again. He said, let's listen to it again. I said, all right. Listen to Jonah again. He said, let's listen to it again. <laughs> I said, I think I want to listen to something different. <laughs> oh, and then we put it on Galatians, what I might preach after Jonah. Then he said, let's listen to it again. I was like, let's do something different. And, uh, and then again, thinking about the rest of the day, I love reading. I read a lot, read through my sermon. He would come up and sit next to me with his own little book. He can't read, but he just does this little thing with his finger like he's reading as I'm sitting there reading. And some of the other things we did yesterday, again, they reflect Haddon, but they really reflect me. We played a lot of Smash Bros. and Catan Jr. He's like really into Catan Jr. right now. Um, But there is this looking at, observing the son that ought to give you a picture of the father. And again, in Paul's life, his teaching, you can learn about it by following the example of those who are following the example of Paul. There is this downline, so to speak. One of the most basic expectations for Christians is that we seek to help other Christians follow Jesus, that we seek to do spiritual good toward others. Whether or not we realize it or not, we're all being discipled and we're all discipling others toward something. We're exercising some level of influence toward a particular type of end or transformation. The question is what end? What are we discipling one another to? Consider the example that we have in Paul, what he's wanting us to imitate, that in him we see a man who is consumed by the ultimate reality that is Jesus, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? His only concern is that Christ is proclaimed and that he's honored in his body, whether by life or death. Being executed means, being not executed means more fruitful ministry. Not being executed means more, or means being with Jesus. Prison means defending the gospel. Freedom means proclaiming and confirming it. Mature Christians, I think this is important for us to get, they can invite others to follow them because they're running the same race. They've not yet made it. They are not perfect, but they're making every effort. To draw off of Paul's running analogy, the Christian life is a race, but it's not an individual race. It's more like a cycling peloton. Okay, when mature Christians are doing, they're seeking to set the pace and they're inviting other Christians behind them to draft off of them. Watch me as I, by God's grace, seek to think God's thoughts after him. Watch me as I shoulder the burdens of those in our body. Watch how I relate to, encourage, and rebuke my roommates. Watch me as I repent, as I'm confronted by my own sin, by others, and by the Holy Spirit. See how I grieve it. See how I handle conflict in my family. Watch me work in a way that honors the Lord Watch me seek to love my neighbors, to get to know them, to share the gospel with them. This isn't arrogance. Time and time again in Paul, by his own description, he describes himself as the least of the apostles, as the least of the saints, as the chief of sinners. Inviting others to follow you as you follow Christ is not arrogance. It's an invitation for them to reap the benefits of God's grace in your life. It's an understanding that you're not what you once were, but by God's grace you're becoming more and more what you will be and you can invite others into that life with Jesus. So Christian, and, member, and to the members in particular, especially if you consider yourself mature, are you inviting others to run with and behind you, so to speak? Are other members regularly around your dinner table? Are you reading and praying with younger Christians? Do you regularly check in on the saints, perhaps as you're praying through the membership directory to ask how they're doing to see how you can encourage them? Do you repent to others? Are you seeking to do spiritual good to those in our body? I think this is a telling and convicting question for all of us, but if all of our lives looked more like your life, would our church be holier, healthier? If you understand yourself to be a less mature Christian, are you seeking to rub shoulders with more mature Christians? I think the way that Paul even puts it here, the onus is more on them, the responsibility is on us to follow those who are following his example. So it should be on you to ask to spend time with godly Christians, ask to read and pray with them, watch them, listen to them. I'm confident you won't find any perfect Christians here. I'm equally confident that you will find a number of Christians who understand what Paul is getting at, that we are imperfect but in progress, and that Christ is worth the all-out pursuit even as it costs us Everything. So Paul is drawing this downline to show them who to imitate because a Christian Christian life is not an individual pursuit, right? It happens in the context of the church. You can't do it alone. And he's concerned to draw a circle around them to show them who they are to be following and who they're not to be following. Verse 18, it begins with, look at the text, for, Paul is giving us this reason why he's reminding us of his example. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. In contrast to Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, those who follow Paul's way of life for his example, these people are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. So who are these people? There are a few different... um, few different guesses they could be the Judaizers that he's described earlier in the text it could be their pagan persecutors that we saw at the end of uh, chapter 1 I think what Paul has in mind here are a group of people who profess to be Christians or once dead they're not in the Philippian body but it's a group who either professes to be a Christian or once did but what are, but the way that they live reveals that they're not actually Christians and the reason I say that is it seems like Paul is concerned that they're going to follow their example, that they can exert a degree of influence over them. The fact that Paul reminds them with tears this is not the way that Paul talks about the Judaizers here or in Galatians or even their opponents earlier in Romans chapter or sorry, Philippians chapter one. I think Paul is brought to tears because we're talking about a group of people who understand themselves to be Christians or once did. And then there's also, you maybe have caught this, this logical progression in Paul's argument of the chapter. The Judaizers are given to what we would call legalism. We're saved by the works of the law. And then Paul hits that head on, right? That those are actually increasing our spiritual bankruptcy before God. That we don't want righteousness from the law, but we want to be declared righteous by God apart from the law through faith in Jesus. So he moves from legalism to we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then there's this movement toward lawlessness. Paul seems concerned that we understand that there's an opposite error. On the one side, I've made it and I've earned it, and the other, it doesn't matter how I live. So let's take a closer look at how he describes them. He says that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross, of of course, is the means by which God saves us. It's the message we proclaim, and the way that they live stands in open hostility to what Jesus' entire life and death was about the removing the punishment and penalty and power of sin. That is to say for them, there is no fight of sin, only embrace. He says their God is their stomach. I think this really brings that out. That means that they're ruled by their appetites. right? If a God is someone you worship and submit to, these people are ruled by their fleshly desires, always doing what they desire without restraint. That is, of course, not to say that Christians don't sin. We certainly do but our lives ought to be characterized by struggle, repentance, growth. Struggle, repentance, growth. This other group of people is characterized by indulgence, by being enslaved to their sin. And then Paul says their shame is in their glory. You maybe caught this as well. This stands in contrast to what will happen to us in verse 21, where we're transformed into the manner of his glorious body. We're destined for glory later, where we won't be put to shame. They are experiencing their glory now in the things that ought to bring them shame. Not just the things that ought not to be tolerated but rejected, they are celebrating. We ought to be characterized by awaiting and running. They're focused on earthly things. Again, this doesn't mean we don't have concerns about our health and our hobbies and our family and our work. What the text is getting at is that they are consumed by the here and now in opposition to the things of God. So earthly doesn't mean human. It means fleshly worldly as opposed to heavenly paul gets at this in colossians chapter 3 therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature sexual morality impurity lust evil desire and greed which is idolatry because of these god's wrath is coming upon the disobedient this echoes what paul says here which i've saved for last because of the trajectory that they're on their end is destruction We're talking about a group of people with two different focuses, lifestyles, trajectories, and end. Our works reveal what kind of people we are and what kind of end we will have. Whereas in faith we eagerly wait for the return of Jesus, which will mean for us glory and gain, their life of open hostility to God will mean for them destruction and doom as they find themselves under the just and unrelenting wrath of God. The tragic in ironic part being they either consider themselves Christians or they once did. If you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're here and you call yourself a Christian, but you realize verse 18 sounds more like you, we would implore you this morning to turn to Jesus. He stands ready, extending to you grace and mercy, and most importantly, himself. That on the cross we believe that Jesus was punished in our place, that he rose victoriously from the grave three days later, that he now extends to us his own righteousness that you can have simply by trusting in him. And Christian, notice how Paul feels about this group of people. He weeps for them. When was the last time you wept for someone you know has either walked away from the faith or considers themselves a Christian, yet their life proves otherwise. Living in the Western Hemisphere, the South in particular, we are surrounded by people who fit in this category, what we would call nominal Christians. Christian in name only, walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, indulging their appetites, walking toward destruction. Does that make us weep? It ought to lead us to prayer to evangelism, the thought that many of our friends and family claim to be Christians, yet have no regard for the things of God. It ought not to push us to be casual, but to tears, not to indifference, but to our knees, not to silence, but to preach the gospel, which is good news. There is nothing greater, and we know this for Christians, there is nothing greater than gaining Jesus. And there is nothing more horrific than finding yourselves as an enemy of God in his holy and just hands. The stakes are so high that we ought to be careful about whom we follow. We are confident, however, that what God has begun in us, he will finish. That what awaits us is not destruction, but glory, resurrection, and therefore the fullness of knowing and being made like Jesus. Because of this great end, we run in hope. We wait eagerly. We consider our last point now, we eagerly wait. Paul contrast this group you just described with us in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a reminder, Philippi is a Roman colony. That means if you're a citizen of Philippi, you're a citizen of Rome. It comes with a great deal of um, rights and glory within the empire. It also means that all of Philippi, Philippi worships Nero in the imperial cult. So all of Philippi worships Nero, sands the Christians. And it's bringing for them um, an increasing degree of persecution from the state and their neighbors. And what Paul is wanting to do is not to negate their Roman citizenship, but to lift their gaze to their true home, heaven, to their true king, Jesus, and their true need, a savior. We don't await our savior from Rome or from the U.S., but from heaven. Everyone is talking about this upcoming election like it will determine the outcome of our nation, and that might be true. And I think if you just listen to talking heads, if you consider the trajectory that we're on, I don't think it's gonna be good for Christians as it relates to our time here. Now more than ever, we need to be reminded that our hope lies not in a donkey or an elephant, but in the lion and the lamb, to a kingdom that will not fade, And the more we're pressed, the answer is not to conform, not to bend a knee now, but later, to eagerly wait for what will be revealed at the coming of Jesus, our final vindication, the fullness of our salvation, knowing and being made like Jesus. So Paul says we eagerly wait for a Savior. Christ does many things to us. He is a friend, a brother. He's our high priest and king. But what we're waiting for is a Savior. I want to hone in on this because Paul does and because of what it says about Christ and what it says about what we need we most fundamentally need a Savior Paul's laying the emphasis here it reminds us that we're not home that we are this outpost of heaven and an outpost of Rome and we're waiting for salvation at the hands of Jesus if you recall at the end of the Christ hymn in chapter 2 that's chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 Paul ends it by referencing Isaiah 45 when he says that every knee and every tongue will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. That is that Jesus is Yahweh. Now you wouldn't have seen this and realized it in his first coming. If you saw him on the cross, you wouldn't think God, you would think criminal. But when Christ returns, he, his Godness will be on full display as we see the glorious one. We will see him and we will fall to our knees as we see him for who he is. Well, Paul here applies another Old Testament title of God to Jesus, and it's Savior. Perhaps referencing Isaiah again, Isaiah 43:11 through 12. I, I am the Lord, that is, I am Yahweh. Besides me, there is no Savior. I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration, and I am God. The Old Testament is emphatic that salvation belongs to God, that he is the Savior and him alone. And Paul, unequivocally, again, about the identity of Jesus Christ, tells us that he is the God-man, that salvation belongs to the Lord, and he brings it with him. So while the punishment of our sins was dealt with on the cross once and for all, we still are waiting for the fullness of salvation, being fully freed from the power of sin and its sway over us in the created order, being free of our enemies, both spiritual and physical, being free of the wrath that is to come. Friends, again, what we most desperately need is not another politician or platform, but a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. Paul tells us what he's going to do in verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body. So again, what Paul's doing, it follows the conceptual pattern of the Christ hymn in chapter 2 that God the Son humbled himself, he became a man, he humbled himself further to the point of obedience, to the point of death on a cross, that because of that God has exalted him and given him this name that is above every other name. Now of course what God the Son takes is unique, it's God becoming a man, his death is penal, it's substitutionary, he makes atonement for us, his resurrection is done by his own power, he's exalted to glory that is his by right, but we follow the same pattern of humility and then exaltation. Again, the Christian first encounters the cross before the crown. Paul is getting at that right now, our bodies are currently in a, of humble condition. That's not to say our bodies are humble, though it's certainly true. He's getting at the fact that we're living in a state of humiliation our bodies. It's like the focal point of our suffering and pain and sin. It's where we're experiencing the fullness in a maybe in an especially acute way. As all the members know, and as I assume most of the visitors have surmised, our whole household came down with COVID and have really been experiencing the weakness of our bodies, this humble state. So about a month ago, Jess and I contracted it. We came out of quarantine. Then Josie, our youngest daughter, got it. And um, I mean, it was a, it was a real beatdown. But we shouldn't be surprised. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, that all of creation is groaning, longing to be free from bondage. Suffering, be it in the form of illness or persecution or injustice, it often comes as a gift from God because it lifts our eyes to heaven. Like creation, we groan in weakness, in frustration, at a loss for words. It's a good thing to grow tired of sin and pain on earth as it makes us grow eager for glory in heaven. And that is, of course, what awaits us a glorious transformation. We await bodily resurrection, the fullness of knowing and being made like Jesus. That what began at justification as God declared us to be righteous in his sight, he brings to completion as Jesus is returned and we are made glorious, free from the taint of sin and the curse. Think about it, friends. That what is his glory, by virtue of who he is, God, will be given to us as a gift by grace, that we become like Jesus in every way when we see him. And he does this, Paul says, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. I think what Paul's trying to do here is to give us rock-solid assurance that when Jesus comes, he will make good on his word, that we will be free from the power of sin, from the power of our enemies, that we will be made to partake even in the glory of Christ. He will keep the promise that he has made. He's able to do so. It's evident by the same power that enables him to subject everything in the cosmos to himself. We're talking about absolute power, and it gives us assurance. You're probably familiar with the movie Taken. You probably have seen it or are familiar with it. Liam Neeson plays Brian Mills. He's a Um, Former Special Forces, he doesn't have a good relationship with his daughter Kim and in the beginning of the film he's trying to rehabilitate it. Um, She doesn't seem to respect him very much. But he even gives up more lucrative work so he can be around her to try to build, foster this relationship with her. She plans this trip to Europe, he doesn't want her to go, he's kind of seen the evils of the world and the work that he's in. But he acquiesces, she goes, as soon as they make it to their flat in Paris, She's checking in with her father on the phone and she sees a group of men abducting her friend who she's there with. Now, Brian Mills, knowing what's going to happen next, he instructs Kim to hide under this bed, to shout out all the details that she has on the phone. He makes this promise to her that he's going to come for. Then Liam Neeson delivers what has to be one of the most popular quotes in film history, certainly one of the most epic, as he speaks on the phone with one of the men who kidnapped his daughter with the intent of selling her into the sex trade. Mills says this, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you, but if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. I don't highlight this quote to celebrate violence, <laughs> or or it also wasn't meant to be a joke. What I will say is your innate desire for justice in salvation is ultimately for a judge who will bring retribution, and what resonates. In the film with us, I think it's not just our uh, love for violence, it is good triumphing, triumphing over evil through judgment that Mills saves his daughter. He makes a promise and he does just that. he wreaks havoc on this human trafficking ring who kidnapped Kim. Their end was destruction. He does this until he finds her, if you recall the last scene, on a yacht, The man who has purchased Kim at this point, he um, is threatening Kim's life and he tries to plead with Brian Mills. He tries to negotiate. He says, we can negotiate. But the time for repentance had come and gone. Mills ends the man and then Kim begins to weep as she says to her father, you came for me. Again, she had no idea what he was capable of. I can't imagine all the things that she's feeling, but in terror, disbelief, joy, relief, hope, love, she asks him again, You came for me. He responds, I told you I would. She needed a Savior and she got one. And by his power, he made good on his word. Friends, we have absolute assurance that Christ will return for his people. That he will glorify us, that he will save us from the power of sin. And that he will do so by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. That same power that is currently holding together every single atom in the universe the same power that will bend every single knee in the cosmos, that same power that crushes the head of the snake, that same power that raised his body from the grave will rip ours out of the ground and glorify it. It's so certain that death itself becomes a means of gain for the Christian. And so we wait. Friends, what God has begun, he will finish. He'll see to it himself, he will come for us. There's a type of waiting that doesn't demand anything from you. It's more passive. (laughs) Perhaps like waiting for an Amazon package. And then there's this kind of waiting that's more active because it determines and dictates uh, the entirety of your life, like waiting for a heart transplant. Friends, what would it look like for us to be characterized by this kind of active, eager, hopeful, desperate waiting? Waiting. Paul goes on, verse 1, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord. Paul returns to one of his two major concerns of the book, which is their perseverance. He condenses what he said in chapter 1, verse 27. Here he says, stand firm. Right? Rome might be pressing in, but stand firm. Your family might be rejecting you, stand firm. Your businesses might be shut down because you're a Christian but stand firm you might be experiencing the humble condition of your body as it fails you but stand firm you might be sick of fighting sin stand firm the Lord Jesus Christ will save us he is powerful to do so he is loving to do so and so in this matter we stand firm In our great confession, and our great hope, our last hymn captures what it is we stand firm in. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives, Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. O sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. May we stand firm in our confession and in our great hope, ever looking to heaven and running, that we might grab hold of the one who grabbed hold of us. Come, Lord, soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the calling that You've given us, this upward heavenly calling toward Yourself, toward Your Son. That it is all of grace that You have saved us, that You are saving us, that You will save us. We pray that our church would be characterized by men and women who love Your Word, who seek to use the gifts that You've given them to seek out all the treasures of wisdom that are in Christ. We pray that we would care for one another in such a way that we would run together that we would view our covenant obligations as a joy as we look out for the least of us. And Father, we pray that we would fix our eyes onto heaven, that we would wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you increase our hope for him? Would you increase our love for him? We pray this in his name, amen. Well, if you will stand with me for the singing of our last hymn, Christ our hope, in life and death.